Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Liz Moody Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're learning how to hack our epigenetics to increase our lifespans, discovering how to be more persuasive and get what we want, or talking about what it's really like to be child-free by choice. And yes, those are all real episodes, and they are linked in the show notes if you want to listen. I am so excited today to welcome Dr. Julie Schwartz-Gottman and Dr. John Gottman to the podcast. They are iconic. You have likely heard their research or things they've coined simply because their ideas have so permeated the cultural consciousness. They are the co-founders of the Gottman Institute and inventors of the Gottman Method for Couples Therapy, which is a science and research-backed method used by therapists around the world to list just a few of their many, many achievements. Dr. Julie Schwartz-Gottman has been named the Washington State Psychologist of the Year, and she's authored or co-authored seven books. Dr. John Gottman was named one of the top 10 most influential therapists of the past quarter century by the Psychotherapy Networker. He's done over 50 years of research. He is the author or co-author of over 200 published academic articles and more than 40 40 books. Together, Julie and John co-authored their newest book, Fight Right, How Successful Couples Turn Conflict into Connection. It came out yesterday, and it is so brilliant. They are truly the leading voices in couples psychology, and it was such an honor to get to sit down with them. In this episode, we get into how having quality relationships can extend your life by 17 years, the three fighting styles, and how to know which one you fall into, the five-to-one ratio you need to follow to have a successful fight with your partner, how to know if your relationship is healthy or unhealthy, and whether or not unhealthy relationships can change, the number one thing to never say in a fight what the four horsemen of the apocalypse are and why they can ruin relationships. And also, we talk about how to stop them from ruining relationships. I remember when I first heard about this concept because it's a really famous concept that the Gottmans are really, really famous for. But I was like, wait, some of these show up in my relationship. Is my relationship doomed? Am I going to get a divorce? And we talk about how to combat the four horsemen of the apocalypse when they show up in your relationship. So I found that really, really helpful. And you're not doomed. I'm not doomed. Great news. We talk about why you only have three minutes to create a successful fight, the Gottman's surprising thoughts on love languages, an exercise to build more trust and happiness into your relationship, what to do when a fight isn't resolvable, and how to know when to break up. And then at the end, I presented the Gottmans with some of the most common fights that you have that you sent in, and I asked them to give their best advice for each one. This is just a wildly jam-packed episode, and if I'm being honest, I still can't believe that I got to sit down with the Gottmans and ask them all of my questions. As a person who was raised by therapists, I'm also married to somebody who was raised by therapists. My sister is a therapist. I'm surrounded by therapists. This is about the peak of celebrity for me. It was just so, so cool. As always, we would all love to hear your thoughts as you're listening, so definitely screenshot and tag us on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and the Gottmans are at the Gottman Institute. I have been talking about what I learned in this conversation nonstop since I recorded it, and I'm very confident that this is an episode that you will want to share, so please send a link to anyone and everyone in your life. 
definitely your partner, first of all, because that is such a good way to kick off a conversation about these things and to open up that door, but also friends and family members. We all could fight better both in our romantic lives and our other relationships. Okay, I am so excited. So let's get right into it. John and Julie, it is such an incredible honor to be sitting with you here today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for inviting us. Yeah, this is great. (laughs) Okay, so I'd love to just set the scene about the massive importance of relationships before we get into fighting and how to keep our relationships healthy. So you say if you can help people improve the quality of their relationships and get closer, you can extend their life by 17 years, which is a really long time. Can you speak to the science behind that and why that's happening? Yeah. In the past 50 years, a new science has developed called social epidemiology. And, you know, they initially really wanted to study cholesterol and diet, you know, and they were studying Chinese American immigrants and taking a look at what they ate because they lived longer and had fewer heart attacks and things like that. And it turned out that the key variable was not diet. It wasn't exercise. It was really the quality of people's closest relationships, their community, their relationships with their children, their close friends, and their love relationships. So this is a whole new field that developed in the past 50 years and turns out to be the best thing you can do for longevity is improve the quality of your closest relationships, your friendships, your love relationships, your relationships with kids and family. And some of the documented physiological things that are happening when you are in moments of conflict, like you talk about your heart rate and things on the negative side, is the reason it would be detracting from your lifespan because of these physiological effects that you've noted when couples are in conflict? Well, let me just point out first, Liz, it's a great question. And when couples are in conflict, that's not a bad thing. So let me say that right off the bat. But if people really feel threatened by their partner, their partner is verbally attacking them, criticizing them, putting them down, after a while, what can happen is the heart rate can go up, 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 as they're sitting there 100 beats a minute or higher, which is very abnormal. People go into fight or flight at that point. Stress hormones are pumping into the blood, which is stressful for the body. Things are happening in the kidneys with angiotensin. So the whole body is getting ready to run or fight. That's fight or flight, which feels absolutely terrible when couples are simply sitting there trying to discuss an issue. That's the physiology that we noted that really tanked at least that conversation, if not the relationship. You said that fighting isn't necessarily a bad thing. And I definitely have friends who will brag about the fact that they never fight with their partner. And then we'll get into this whole conversation about whether it's a really healthy, important part of a relationship to fight or whether it's a bad sign. So I would love your take on that first. Can you have a healthy relationship with no fighting? And then I would love to know how much fighting is too much fighting. Okay, great question. So we actually found couples that you're describing who didn't fight, who agreed to disagree. We called them avoidant 
couples. They were avoiding conflict, didn't like conflict. Oftentimes, Liz, they came from backgrounds where conflict was handled terribly. Thus, you know, they took the opposite stance. I'm not going to fight with my partner. And they typically don't. And they can have really healthy relationships, actually. They can be fine as long as both people are in agreement that will agree to disagree. Then it's fine. Now, if you have a couple who is fighting a lot, that also is a particular style of relationship that we call the volatile couple. And they're fighting about all kinds of stuff. But what we have also found about those couples is that it depends on how they are fighting as opposed to how many times they're fighting. If they are fighting without criticism, without blame, without contempt, which are three big predictors, and defensiveness, then they can fight. It's a sign of passion in the relationship, intensity. Those couples typically have more emotional ups and downs, but they also really can be closer because conflict is actually a way of understanding your partner at a deeper level when the dynamics are right, when you fight right. So then do you think that the people who aren't fighting at all are missing out on that deeper understanding, even if they have agreed to disagree? It could be. One of the things that we noticed is that conflict avoiders and volatile couples and a, a third group we call validators, all styles are great if the ratio of positive to negative is five to one or greater during conflict. So the style of fighting is not as important as the way they fight. And with a five to one positive to negative ratio, there's a lot of interest in one another, a lot of agreement, a lot of head nodding, a lot of curiosity about one another. And that's what makes the difference. I find it so hard to bring positive elements into a fight. So first of all, I'm curious, can we have like enough positive elements at other times in our life that we don't need them in the fight or the five to one ratio? Does that have to be in the moments of conflict? The five to one ratio really needs to be there. And you know, one, <laughs> of, the things, one of the things that couples do that is very powerful during a conflict to make it more positive is to be able to laugh at themselves. So shared humor is a very positive thing. It really reduces physiological arousal. But let me also say that positives are really, really simple. For example, if I'm fighting with John and John is just simply nodding his head and taking in what I'm saying, even physically, not necessarily verbally, that is a positive. Right. Right? So he's nodding his head. That's positive. If he says, hmm, hmm interesting. that's a positive. You see, so it doesn't have to be a grand gesture of positivity. It can be something so simple. All of those count. Can you share a few more examples of positives? And then can you also share a few examples of what a negative might be? Here are some positives. You can say to your partner, hmm, that's interesting, which shows a little bit of curiosity. You can ask a question like, help me understand that. I don't quite get it. Tell me what you're feeling. That would be a super positive. 
Another positive might be, fair enough. Even if you disagree with your partner, they're still fair enough. You're putting yourself in your partner's shoes and empathizing with their position on the issue, which is a wonderful positive. You can also say, I get it. That's validation. I like that you're not having to say, you're right, or I concede my point, or I agree with you. That's right. Because all of these positives simply create a better atmosphere in which compromise can occur a bit later. So compromise, we have another way of handling that, but these are all positives that add up to the five to one ratio. Now, negatives are a whole nother story. So let's talk about criticism first. Criticism means blaming a problem on a personality flaw of your partner, like saying, God, you're so lazy. Why don't you clean up the kitchen? That's one. Let's stop there for a second really quickly. So that's different than you never clean up the kitchen. Because always and never, (laughs) believe it or not, are also criticisms because they imply a personality flaw. You see? Yes, that makes tons of sense. But okay, so then in that example, I'm really frustrated that you haven't been cleaning up the kitchen doesn't imply something about one's personality, which doesn't make it criticism. That's exactly right. But let me tell you a little secret. What works much better is to say what you feel about the situation in a neutral way, and I'll give an example of this, and then your positive need. And your positive need is saying, how can your partner shine for you? What can they do? do as opposed to what they shouldn't do. So an example we just worked with is, I'm really frustrated about the kitchen always being a mess. That's the situation. Here's the positive need. Would you please help me clean up the kitchen? Simple as that. That works wonderfully well. What if our partners or our positive need conflicts with something that they perceive as part of their identity. So to the point of the kitchen, I'm a messy person and my husband is a cleaner person. And we have so many fights about cleaning because he'll be like, I really like to live in a clean house. And I'm like, that's not on my priority list. Why do I need to clean to have you feel a certain way in the home when I'm really busy? I don't have a lot of time. I know I don't sound great in this, but (laughs) what do you do when there's an identity conflict with the other person's needs? So here's where you dive deep. Here's where you go subterranean. The first thing you bring up is what you want, what you need, as I just mentioned it. But then you take turns as a speaker and a listener, and you ask your partner when you're the listener, so do you have some values or beliefs or ethical guidelines that are part of your position? You can ask, is there some childhood history or background to why this feels so important to you? What does make this so important to you? What do you feel about it? What are your ideal dreams here about this issue? And is there some underlying purpose in this for you? So 
questions that dig deep. And especially, Liz, you know, when you go into childhood history or background, oh boy, you know, you come up with all kinds of information, maybe old traumas, maybe the way things were handled or not handled in their own childhood home that they want to change. So those big answers build compassion and understanding for each other. And from there, then you work on a compromise. This is a little nuanced, but do you think that people have fixed elements of their personality or do you think they're always available for change? Like can somebody use in a fight, I just am a quick to anger person or I'm just a messy person, et cetera? Personality is real. And now that we know how to measure it using the big five, we know exactly what is stable over time. But using it as an excuse is a different matter because that's really defensiveness. And say, well, I'm just a messy person and I don't consider this important is a way of really dissing your partner's needs, right? And saying, what you need is not important to me. I have other things that are important to me, but not what you need. And in a way that's putting your partner in a really diminished place. Do you want to talk a little bit about game theory here? And what works? Well, part of what we've discovered is that couples who build trust, which means that each person is really thinking for two, not only for themselves, is interested in maximizing their partner's benefits, not only their own. And when there's a climate of trust, then it's a lot easier to really get to the deeper meanings and purpose because you really believe that your partner has your best interest in mind as well as his own or her own. And so it's less threatening, you know, to be able to talk about a big issue that may really challenge people's personalities. Okay. I And I'll bring us back to the negatives in the fight. But I'm curious about that. What if one partner you feel is inherently more selfish and one partner feels like they're really taking the relationship into mind all the time or the family unit or that dynamic and the other person is more taking into account their own needs more often? Yeah, that's really a problem. So if one person is really doing all of the thinking for two, all that relationship work, and the other person is just thinking about how do I maximize benefits for me? I work with a couple where I was their sixth couples therapist. And of course, I thought it was going to be really terrific at helping them. But one session they came in and they said, I think this is our last session. We're done. And I said, oh, really? That's too bad. I thought we were making some progress. Well, you paid for this session already. So maybe you can help me understand the way in which I've really failed as a therapist. And I said, well, just tell me about last week. And they said, yeah, we were at a party and the husband said, I was having a great conversation with this woman I just met there. And my wife said, oh, I'm tired. I want to go home. On the ride back, I said, you know, this always happens. Husband said, uh, when we're at a party and I'm you know, talking to another woman that I'm really interested in, you want to interrupt it all the time. And I just really hate that. I hate when you do that because I enjoy flirting with other women. I enjoy talking to them. And you're always tired. You want to go home. And I said, so what were you thinking when you said that? And he said, well, I was thinking, you know, I can do better than this relationship. And I said, and what were you thinking to the wife? And she said, I was thinking, 
he's never going to grow up. Who needs this crap? And I said, oh, now I understand why I failed with you. You can go now. And they said, well, can you tell us why you think you failed? I said, well, this is a relationship without trust and commitment. And they said, what do you mean? We have children together. We have a house together. We're married. What do you mean there's no trust and commitment? I said, well, each person is thinking I can do better after you have a conflict. So you're not really committed to the relationship. And you're working only for your benefit, husband. And you're carrying all the load and sacrificing in order to make up for what he's not giving. So this is a relationship with very low trust and no commitment. So no therapist is going to be able to help you. So that was the example. Do you think if one person feels like they're always thinking about the couple, they're always thinking about the family unit, and the other person seems to be thinking about themselves, that's a sign that the relationship isn't healthy and should be ended? Or can that ever be switched to be a healthy relationship? Actually, I contacted that couple about six months later, and they had their seventh therapist. And I asked them how it was going, and they said, we're actually working on trust and commitment with one another and making real headway because we realized even though we'd gotten married and said our vows, we actually weren't living our vows. So I think it's really changeable. I do too. I would say probably 80% of my couples come in exactly like that, where one is really only thinking about themselves, the other person is trying to fill in the gaps and doing everything they can to bring the partner into the circle and is failing at it. Mm -hmm. But what often happens is that the partner who is trying to bring the other into the relationship, that partner gets fed up and starts getting critical. You're so thoughtless. You're so inconsiderate. You absolutely never think about what I need or maybe even helping me out. Why don't you do that? And why don't you do that? Or what's wrong with you? Those are criticisms too. How are you supposed to answer that? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with me. You know, I have half a heart instead of a whole heart. And, you know, part of my uh, frontal cortex, my brain is missing. And so I tend to be very selfish. Yeah. So that's never going to work. And that's often the dynamic that I see when couples first sit down on the couch. And it can totally change. This is a couple, typically, who haven't gone deep into their relationship, who don't share their feelings because they feel uncared for, invisible, and unimportant, and who just go underground, okay, I'm going to live my own parallel life here and do whatever I have to do. I don't care about the marriage. Maybe I'll just devote all my time to the kids. That's kind of what it looks like at the beginning. But then... They have to get to know each other as human beings again, deeper, deeper. And if they think the other person ought to be just like them, you know, we talk about clones. And how interested would you be in relating to somebody who's exactly like you, who is a clone, who is a duplicate? It's going to be pretty boring, <laughs> actually. And we've seen that also in the research. People tend to pick 
others who are very different from them. Actually, probably for genetic reasons, to create more genetic diversity. So, very, very important to try to be more vulnerable in a relationship and make it safe for your partner to do so also, so that you get to know each other again as human beings with real needs that perhaps are not getting met, and maybe some of the love can be rekindled in the process. If somebody were listening to this episode and they were like, I'm in that relationship that you're talking about where I'm caring about the relationship, I'm caring about the other person, maybe they're not caring about me, they're more individualistic, could you give them one action step they could take today to begin that work? Sure. First of all, they should say to their partner, honey, I would love to just have a couple of hours with you to just sit down and talk. We haven't done that in a long time. First step. Second step, sit down with your partner for a couple of hours and talk. And one of the things that you might want to say to your partner is, you know what, in this relationship, I'm really feeling lonely. I'm missing you. And you're on the golf course a lot or at work. And so I don't have an opportunity to connect with you. And I really want to connect with you, but you're not there. Is there a way that we can change this so that both of us can experience more connection with each other? Because maybe, I don't know, but maybe you're feeling a little lonely too. That's how you say it, as opposed to, you're never there for me. And all you think about is yourself. And you're so inconsiderate and selfish. Why do you have to be that way? That <laughs> doesn't work. It sabotages you getting listened to because your partner is just going to feel attacked, criticized, and then will go defensive. Oh, yeah? Well, you don't even pay the bills. I pay the bills, you know, etc. That's not going to work. I have a product that is going to change your life. I've recommended this to so many people and they're all floored. It's basically a perfect dupe for the viral Laneige lip mask, but a million times better and with ingredients that are clinically proven to help dry lips and actually good for you, which is important because you're essentially eating anything that goes on your lips. It is the Osmia Lip Repair Overnight Mask and it feels like heaven. And you're going to want one for yourself and also to stock up and give them as gifts because they are the best present. They help my dry lips when nothing else works and I will never be without mine now. And while you're on the Osmia site, you are going to want to stock up on the bar soaps. This is the original product that Dr. Sarah Villafranco, the founder, created, and they have converted me to bar soaps after years of not being able to take the plunge. They're cured longer, so they last way longer than any other bar soap I have ever found, which is amazing for travel. I have been traveling so much recently, and I've had literally the same bar of soap, and they smell amazing, and they do not dry out your skin. Go with the scent that speaks to your soul, but coffee mint is my personal favorite. Finally, if you remember Sarah's pod episode, she has a whole line of products that help with skin conditions like perioral dermatitis, which is when you get red and broken out around your mouth, eczema, and acne, even when nothing else works. She's famous for this. So start with the black clay facial soap and the purely simple face cream if you are like, oh yes, that is me. 
If you'd like to try any Osmia skincare products for yourself, they have so generously created a code for the Liz Moody podcast listeners. Code Liz Moody is good for 20% off your first order with Osmia at osmiaskincare.com. Once again, code Liz Moody is good for 20% off your first order with Osmia at osmiaskincare.com. Okay, I'm going to tell you about my current obsession, the Element Chocolate Electrolytes. You drink these hot, like hot chocolate, and I know it sounds weird. I was so skeptical at first, but they are actually incredible. The saltiness adds a savory note that makes it taste way more sophisticated than normal hot chocolate. The flavors are amazing. Chocolate mint is my number one, but chocolate raspberry is a close second, and they hydrate you so much, which I especially love before bed because I get weirdly thirsty, but I don't want to drink too much water and then wake up and have to pee in the middle of the night. Electrolyte and sodium deficiency is actually at the root of many of the problems that even the healthiest eaters and athletes face. Things like headaches, muscle cramps, and fatigue. We're always told to just drink water when we have these symptoms, but drinking more water actually makes the problem worse if electrolytes are not also replaced. Hydration is not just about drinking more water. It is critical to hydrate with water plus electrolytes to get to euhydration, which is when we have adequate fluid balance in our bodies, and that's why Element is key for hydration. Each Element packet is made with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Element delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes without any sugar, fillers, or artificial coloring. If you want to try Element for yourself, the Liz Moody Podcast listeners can receive a free Element sample pack, which includes one packet of every flavor, including the new chocolate medley, with any order when you order at drinklmnt.com slash Liz. And if you do not love it, Element offers no questions asked refunds on all orders, so there's literally no risk in giving it a shot. That's drinklmnt.com slash Liz for your free sample pack today. It points out that you can't force people to care about something. You need to cultivate the environment of caring. You can't say, I want you to not think about yourself. I want you to think about a relationship and have that come out of nowhere. You have to create this environment of intimacy and trust and vulnerability so that they want to do that, which I think is really lovely. If somebody was listening and they're like, I'm in a healthy relationship, but I'm interested in building more trust, building more loyalty, building more of the us togetherness energy, would that be the same exercise or would you have a different exercise for them? Oh, gosh, there's a million exercises. So one of the things that we often wonder, even with couples who are doing well and healthy, is are they having fun? Are they having adventures together? Because so many couples that we hear from say the relationship is the place where fun and adventure have come to die. Not okay. That was and true for 80% of the couples we studied 40,000 couples about to start couples therapy. 80% of them said fun had come to die in their relationship. Right. So we know that actually people in the U.S. probably work harder than people in other countries, most countries. Because they work so hard, because they're trying to economically make it, and they have kids, and they have a house or an apartment to take care of, they're so busy with the to-do list that 
their relationship ends up when they're talking, just checking off things on the to-do list. So what can really be helpful to gain more trust, more intimacy, is to say, you know what, I really miss having fun with you. We haven't gone out on a real date since, I don't know, 1947. (laughs) So can we please go out on a date and not just watch a movie where we're sitting in parallel, not talking to each other, but maybe go out to dinner and just enjoy the wonderful food and talking to one another and saying to one another, so how are you really doing? What's going on in your internal world? How are you feeling about what's going on on the political scene, in the world in general? Julie and I do an annual honeymoon every year. In 23 years, we rent the same room in the same bed and breakfast, and we bring our kayak. And we spend about 10 days asking each other, what did you hate about last year? What did you love about last year? And what do you want next year to be like? Yep. It's so great. That's our way of playing and renewing things. Yeah, it's so wonderful. So when our daughter was about eight, she wanted to go to camp. So we sent her to camp, and the camp was for about three weeks or so. And that meant, okay, we don't have childcare. Why don't we go to camp? And that's (laughs) when we started doing this ritual, which is another great way of bringing couples closer together, a ritual of connection, which is something that you design together, you plan together so that it's really pleasing for both of you. You commit to doing it at a particular time, for how long, where, when, and so on, that you really practice. I'll give you another example. I had a fabulous couple. This couple was so cool. They were in recovery for an affair, and they came in brokenhearted, of course. She did anyway. And we worked and worked, and they really revamped their relationship, and they created marriage number two. That's what we called it. Marriage number one had burned to the ground with the affair, but marriage number two was off and running. And they created a ritual called This Is Our Dream Time. And what they would do once a week is sit on a couch facing each other, holding hands, and what are you dreaming about? That was the question that they would talk about. What are you dreaming about? And it was always different. It always changed just with the nature of living for a week and going through whatever experiences and then talking about, hmm, here's what I would really love. It was so beautiful, and it brought them really closely together. I love the idea of creating a ritual out of it, too, because one, it takes decision fatigue out of it, which when we are so busy, we're doing these jobs, we have these busy lives, it can be hard to be like, okay, what are we doing to connect right now? And Mm -hmm. ritualizing it takes that out of it. And it also gives you something to look forward to, which I think is really special and lovely. Something that I struggle with, and I think this is speaking to some of the same points that we're talking about right now, is that I debate between if I'm always so on in the world, my partner is the one person I can be the most myself with, I can relax, I cannot have to turn it on for. 
But then that results in me giving him the worst version of myself. And I'm sparkling Mm. for other people, but Mm. I'm not sparkling as much for him. But then I'm like, I love that you're this safe space that I don't have to put on a show for. I'm curious what your advice would be on that, because I think it speaks to some of the same points. It's not me being individualistic per se, but it has Mm -hmm. the same like not putting the value on the relationship. Mm, I wouldn't agree with that judgment. Okay. I think all of us, especially if you're in the public light a lot, have to develop a persona of some sort, typically. And that persona is going to be part of you, but maybe not the most vulnerable parts of you. So first of all, the most important thing to do is to go to your partner and say, do you regret that I'm not the sparkly part of me most of the time when you and I are together. Do you want more of that part of me in the relationship? Or is it okay that I come to you sometimes down, sometimes frustrated, sometimes angry, stressed out, and we talk about those kinds of things? How do you feel about my showing that part of you as opposed to the sparkly part the public gets. So you've got to find out how your partner feels about it before you make any changes. And then you ask your partner, so what would you want to see? What would feel the best for you in terms of our really being transparent with one another? And then see what your partner says and whether or not you can accommodate that wish. You've mentioned criticism and we've mentioned defensiveness. Those are two of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which you guys are quite well known for. Are the four horsemen of the apocalypse essentially the negative parts of the five to one ratio in fights? They're the most toxic ones. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So going back to the negatives, maybe we can share a few more negatives that are not the four horsemen, and then we can dive into the two other horsemen of the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, one thing to say that was surprising in the research was that it turned out that anger was not a bad thing. There are a lot of couples therapies that say never get angry, but we actually found in particular that a woman's anger, even though it's not pleasant in the moment, does predict positive things in the relationship. If she's able to get angry with a partner, then that relationship works better than if she is suppressing the anger and not expressing it all for fear of injuring the relationship. So it's because she feels safe to do so? Exactly. As long as she doesn't use criticism or contempt to express the anger. So, you know, a lot of people get those merged together. Anger equals criticism and contempt. But in fact, it doesn't. It's really okay to say, I'm furious that the kitchen is a mess. I'm upset that the bills haven't been paid. I'm furious that there's another dent in the car. Our insurance is going to go up. Those are all expressions of feelings, and they're fine. Let me give you a couple of other negatives that are not part of the Four Horsemen. In our apartment lab, we brought couples in for 24 hours. They were videotaped, just doing their ordinary activities during the day. Physiology was also measured in each partner with halter monitors. We turned the cameras off when they went to bed. 
on again in the morning. And here's what we saw, a very subtle but important trait of successful couples was when one partner made a bid for connection, the other person responded to it. And they could respond to it in a little tiny way. Like if I was calling John from the living room and I say, hey, John, and he's in the kitchen, there's three ways he could respond to me. He could either totally ignore me, which we call turning away. That's a negative. He could respond with hostility, saying, would you stop interrupting me? I'm trying to read. That's another negative that's not a four horseman. Or he could just say, yeah, what do you need? And that is a positive. Turning toward. Turning toward. That's what we call it. So those turning away moments or turning against moments are really typical of the negatives that are not necessarily part of the four horsemen. What do we do if we're bidding and our partner isn't receiving our bids, but we don't want to criticize them not receiving our bids properly? Mm -hmm. Okay. You go back to the old formula, which is I feel about what? And here's what I need. So here's what you might say. When I try to get your attention for something and I hear nothing back, I feel sad and a little lonely. And I'm wondering, do you think you could simply just turn towards me if I call out your name or I ask for something from you? and just recognize through saying, what do you need? Or, hi, how you doing? Or, huh, that's interesting. When I'm making a bid for connection, do you think you could do that, please? And then I know we're not supposed to say always because then it veers into criticism, but sometimes I feel like I need to bolster that by pointing out how regularly it's happened. The kitchen has been messy the last 20 times. The last 20 times I've called your name, you haven't looked up from your phone. Is that always a bad thing to do? Uh, usually. Okay. <laughs> Keep <laughs> it in the present, though. Sorry, Liz. Yeah, because the person, you know, if they are hearing you haven't helped with the kitchen in 20 days. They feel, okay, it's hopeless. They feel buried by an avalanche. That's not going to work. So you don't want to count all the times that they turn away from you. You haven't turned towards me 172 and a half <laughs> times. What's the matter with you? It's not going to work. But you want your complaint to be powerful. Yeah. Right? So how do I but amp up the power of the complaint? You want to say, I'm really getting exasperated. I'm feeling kind of hopeless about this because I brought it up before and nothing's changed. So is there something that you can do to reassure me that this is going to be on your mind? It's going to be a priority for you. Oh, that's helpful. I think that's a really nice alternative. Okay, so then you mentioned contempt. Can you explain what contempt is? Mm -hmm. So contempt is a little bit like criticism, except it's coming from a superior place. You're placing yourself on a pedestal, looking down at your partner with scorn and disgust. And 
then saying something very sharp and harsh. Sarcasm is a form of contempt. You wouldn't even think to clean up the kitchen, right? Okay. Mockery is contempt and name calling. Those are typical name calling as in bad names. Those are classic ways that we see contempt. And what we found is that contempt is our strongest predictor of relationship demise. It's also predictive of your physical health demise, meaning in a 15-minute conflict conversation, the number of times the listener hears contempt from the other partner relates and predicts how many infectious illnesses they're going to have in the coming years. Which kind of gets back to what you were asking about longevity in the very beginning, because the work of Jan Kiko Glazer and Ron Glazer, where they took little bits of blood from couples as they were having a conflict discussion, showed that the couples who were secreting cortisol and adrenaline, our two stress hormones, really were more likely to divorce in 10 years. And their immune system was functioning badly. And even in the context of the argument, if they looked at the beginning functioning of the immune system and, and at 30 minutes after, there was a decrement because of those stress hormones. So T cells weren't as effective, B cells, natural killer cells, lymphocytes basically didn't function as well. So we know the mechanism through which people wind up dying sooner. Wow. Why do you think contempt is the worst one? Here's why, I think. One of the most painful emotions we can have is shame. I think there's almost nothing worse than shame because shame makes you want to not exist, to disappear. They always talk about, oh my God, I felt so ashamed I wanted to sink into the floor. Okay, so what happens if you do sink into the floor? You don't exist. It's like your very existence is offensive to your partner. That's what contempt feels like. It's communicating disrespect. And that too. That's as important as love. Respect is as important as love and relationship. And then the last one is stonewalling. Right. Can you explain in brief what that is? Mm -hmm. Sure. It's a particularly guy thing to do. 85% of our stonewallers and mixed-sex couples who are male. Bob Levinson and I also discovered that if the person's heart rate was above 100 beats a minute, they were much more likely to stonewall in the next 10 seconds than if they were calm. And we were curious whether lesbians would stonewall. And it turns out when we studied gays and lesbians, they did. The stonewalling is really emotional withdrawal from the relationship. It's being a stonewall. It's not you know, giving the usual signals that you're listening. You're like, mm-hmm, interesting. Oh, yeah, moving your facial muscles, looking at the person you're talking to. The stonewaller looks away. And in the mind of the stonewaller is this monologue that says, oh, God, this is terrible. I have to endure this. It's going to keep getting worse and worse. Just don't say anything. Just don't do anything. Just leave. And that's what's going on inside the mind of a stonewaller. So it's very destructive for the person who's experiencing that physiological arousal 
But then the person who encounters the stonewaller is seeing somebody who doesn't respond to them. So they think, well, the 10-pound cannonball didn't work. Let's try the 20-pound cannonball, you know, and so it escalates. And is that why in the moment, if you are feeling your heart rate be elevated, you guys suggest kind of taking a pause, right, to literally physiologically calm down so you are less likely to exhibit these four horsemen? Yes. So let me talk about that. What is the nature of a good break? Because a lot of people think, okay, yeah, we'll take a time out and we'll just go and think about what we should have said and what would be a great rebuttal. <laughs> partner's point, right? Oh my God. I've How never thought I about revenge? it that way, but I definitely do that. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about what really makes a good break. First of all, you have to be aware that you need one. And typically, you know, our gut may get tight, our chest may get tight. We may find our breathing more shallow. We might find our bodies much more tense. And that typically says, I think I need to take a break. So you tell your partner, I'd like to take a break. And you tell your partner when you will come back to resume the conversation. If you don't do that, I'm going to take a break and you leave. Your partner has no idea if you're going to come back. And a lot of times people don't return to the conversation at all. They just leave it. Not good. So say when you're going to come back, then go to separate places where you can't hear your partner, you can't see your partner, and don't think about the fight. Practice a method of self-soothing, which could be anything that distracts you from the fight. Could be listening to music, reading a book or a magazine, doing your email, doing yoga, doing meditation, taking a walk, going for a run. All those ways of self-soothing are really wonderful. And come back at the designated time when you said you would. Now, if you need more time, you can tell your partner that. You know, I don't think I'm quite there yet. Give me another half hour. The minimum amount of time a break should last is 20 to 30 minutes because you've got to start metabolizing those stress hormones out of your body in order for your body to calm down. The maximum amount should be 24 hours. Anything longer than that feels like punishment. For me, it's such a reframe to think about a break less as a psychological necessity and as a physiological necessity instead, mm -hmm. and to treat the break as this time where I'm trying to create a physiological state change. That's mm -hmm. such a helpful unlock mm -hmm. for me. Let me also say, uh, this is one of the things I tell my couples who get flooded a lot, is when you take a break, you are protecting the relationship not just yourself. You're protecting the relationship from an escalated quarrel that can go off the rails because you might be flooded, and that's what happens, and causing some emotional injury to your partner that really feels horrible for both of you. You don't want to do that. So taking a break is a really good thing. And you know you need a break if you believe that repeating yourself louder is more persuasive. Such a good point. Okay, so the oft-quoted thing online that you see on social media when people are talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse is the Gottmans can predict with 90% accuracy that people are going to get divorced. 
as somebody who was raised with no positive relationship models, who has been learning how to be in a relationship through my 15-year relationship Mm -hmm. with my husband, I have exhibited these things. And when I first heard about them, I was like, oh, am I screwed? What does this say about my relationship? So how screwed should we feel (laughs) if we see signs of these things in our own relationship? Well, contempt is the worst. And really, the couples who wind up, you know, staying together happily, contempt is almost zero in their interaction. So that's one that you should really work to eliminate. But even great relationships, people get critical sometimes and defensive and so on. So repairing those things is really the best we can do. If it happens, we can say, oh, geez, let me try that again. I'm sorry. I blurted out something I really didn't want to say. So let me try that again. We actually have a repair checklist that people can use when they realize in the moment they got defensive. We have a rule that if one of us says, you're being defensive, they're automatically right. Because if you say, no, I'm not, I'm not defensive. That shows you're defensive. (laughs) Right, right. One of my favorite repairs when you are feeling defensive is instead of going defensive, say, I'm feeling defensive. Mm -hmm. Can you say that in another way, please? I use that probably 20 times a day, right? No, (laughs) not really. But it is a really good one. Would you say that even awareness of the four horsemen of the apocalypse would reduce that 90% likelihood of divorce? I think so. Yeah. I think a lot of times awareness, same thing with bids and turning toward, having awareness of how your partner is asking for what he or she needs. There's not just five love languages. There's a million of them. Yeah, I actually asked for listener questions and people were like, what do they think of the love languages? Is that legitimate? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> I oh. mean, well, let me just say this. There are five different ways one can express love as described in Chapman's book, and that's wonderful. But I think the mistake is thinking that you have primarily one, and that's the one you need to be communicated with which is wrong. Oftentimes, we have all of them plus many, many others. Mm -hmm. There are a million ways of expressing love. You know, making the bed, making the bed together as a team is a great way of expressing love. There are so many ways of sharing that emotion that limiting it to five, and then narrowing down to think, well, I've got one, maybe two at the most, is putting unnecessary constraints on yourself, which lead you to think, I can't do anything different. And that is so not true. We can change eternally. We can grow and change. We can develop new habits. We can develop ways of talking to one another that are much happier and more predictive of success if beginning with awareness and then remembering what the alternative is, we practice that alternative. That's why we wrote the book Fight Right. But the good thing about the love language thing, I think, is that one person may be thinking that they're really showing love, but they're not showing it in a way that communicates love to the other person. So to have a conversation about what can I do next week to make you feel loved, just asking that question 
is really a wonderful thing. Then your partner can say, you know, if you did all childcare for a week, that would make me feel loved. Or your partner can say, you know, we haven't had sex in a couple of weeks, and that would really help. So having the conversation is such a good idea. That's such a simple but powerful question. You say you have 180 seconds to kick off a fight successfully. Can you explain where that number <laughs> came from and how we kick off a fight successfully? Right. So here's where that came from. 180 seconds is three minutes, right? So here's what we found. The way that a couple started a conflict conversation predicted not only how the rest of the conversation would go, it predicted how the rest of the relationship would go six years down the road with 90% accuracy. And think about it. When you're starting a conflict conversation, how many of us start with a criticism or a put down versus here's what I feel and here's what I need? It's very different. Taking Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is a part of my daily routine that supports my whole body health. I think it's critical to understand that when we think of probiotics, it's not just for the gut health issues like bloating and constipation. They support the entire body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic has 24 bacterial strains that are scientifically studied to support our digestion, our skin, our heart health, our immune system, and more. Their team of scientists formulated the DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic as a capsule within a capsule that actually survives in the gut rather than being killed by stomach acid before you even get the benefits. The outer capsule is the prebiotic, which research is finding out more and more are so, so important. These are the foods the good bacteria need to eat to thrive. And then it protects the inner capsule, which contains the probiotics so they can actually reach your gut. This is critical. With other products, you might not even be getting the microbiome support you're expecting due to a capsule that doesn't shield the bacteria. Seed's team is leading the research that other companies essentially develop products based on down the line. They are so, so committed to science and to evolving their products, so you're getting all of those benefits first. If you would like to try Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic, or their PDSO-8 Pediatric Daily Symbiotic for kids and teens aged 3 to 17, and see for yourself why I and so many other people love it, I have an amazing discount for you. You can use code LIZMOODY at seed.com to get 25% off your first month's supply. Again, that's LIZMOODY at seed.com for 25% off. There is so much incredible science behind red light therapy. There's research going all the way back to 1903 that won a Danish physician a Nobel Prize for showing that exposure to concentrated red light accelerated physical healing. And research from NASA has shown that it boosts the production of growth factor proteins and collagen, among many other incredible things. I am obsessed with red light therapy. It is so science-supported, and I've personally seen huge, huge benefits. I use Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device, which is a red light panel, so I'm not limiting its benefits to my face. I feel like the masks are so popular right now, but I would like to expose my entire body to the red light. That way, it helps with not only my skin, my collagen production, but also increasing energy, decreasing pain, repairing cellular damage, improving mental health and cognitive function, and so much more. 
you are not spending that much more money to get a panel versus a mask, but you get a much more versatile device with way more powerful effects. Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device gives you professional-grade equipment straight at your home for the best price that I have seen anywhere. You can stand your Max panel on the floor on any flat surface, or you can hang it on the back of a door. It is really lightweight, and it is so easily stored away in the closet when you are done using it for the day. You only need 10 to 20 minutes, so Zach and I actually meditate in front of it naked, Uh, but there's lots of ways that you can habit stack it into your routine, so you do whatever sounds good to you. Check out Bond Charge's Max Red Light Therapy device now on bondcharge.com and use my exclusive promo code LizMoody at checkout. Bond Charge products are all HSA, FSA eligible, giving you tax-free savings of up to 40%. And for a limited time on top of that, my listeners will get 15% off when you order from bondcharge.com and use my exclusive promo code LizMoody at checkout. That is B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com. You will also get free shipping and a 12-month warranty. Go now to get this exclusive offer. That is bondcharge.com with promo code Liz Moody to get 15% off. Can you show us maybe a successful kickoff and a bad kickoff of a fight? Sure. Let's do it the wrong way first. I've been watching you and I think you're just a defensive person. You're always looking for the worst in people. How dare you? Yeah. That I mean, is that's so not true. I've you talked to your not- friends about it. They feel that way too. Everybody feels that way about you. John, that is not true. And I really feel angry that you went behind my back. You talked to my friends. How dare you? I'm just what? investigating the problem. You are not investigating the problem. Yeah. You are being critical and mean and contemptuous. Well, if you can't learn from feedback, then you know, you're doing I'm not going to listen to I'm feedback. I'm trying to give you feedback. That is not good feedback. I'm trying that to be honest sucks. with you. You're not being honest. You're being critical and mean. Okay. That's not the way to do it. (laughs) Let's do it the right way. Take two. You know, I'm worried that we just don't have any fun anymore. I mean, we're just working so hard all the time. You know, when was the last time that we even had a date? I can't remember. We went to the Metro Museum or something like that. A while ago was, I can't remember when we did it. I'm getting frustrated working all the time, getting burnt out. What can we do to just have more fun? Do you feel that way? That's the most wonderful question in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Because I would love to have more fun. And like you, I think I've really been feeling overworked too. Yeah, yeah. And so we're kind of in the same place. So you know what? What? what we should do, maybe what we could do is just sit down and create a list of all the fun stuff we used to do yeah. that we've dropped yeah, and bring some of those back, yeah. except the ones that are highly aerobic because we're so old now, we can't do them. <laughs> That's However, right. However, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot we can well, do. We can go to art museums and we can right. go to concerts more. And... Sit a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> Can you point out some of the things that you did there? So I noticed humor right off the bat, which is something that you mentioned that's a positive. Can you point out some of the positives and some of the negatives that we just witnessed? Sure. Okay. In the positives, you heard John saying what he felt and using the word we a lot instead of you. 
and including himself means he's not singling me out for criticism. He's also describing the situation. We don't go out on dates. We haven't had fun. We haven't had fun. There's no criticism in that, right? He's not saying you're a fun killer. He's <laughs> saying we don't have fun. And then he's saying what he would like to do. You know, can we talk about, you know, maybe having fun in some way? So all those were the positives, examples of the positives and the negatives. Oh my God, there's an <laughs> endless list. So he was immediately critical. He's calling me defensive. He's singling me out from a position of superiority. He's ganging up on me, allegedly, by having talked to my friends and saying they all feel the same way. So I'm slammed by an avalanche of negativity and criticism and contempt coming from him. And then when she gets upset, I say, See, you're proving my point, you know. <laughs> so I drive her yeah. to doing exactly what I'm accusing her of. Sure. The friend thing is such a tricky one because that's another one that I feel like we use to bolster our arguments because mm -hmm. we feel like it's we terrible. need that extra power terrible. and it never goes the way you want it to go. <laughs> of course it doesn't. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely horrible. It's a little bit like being bullied, actually. With a gang of kids, you know, if you remember the good old school days, a gang of kids circling around you and ha 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 laughing and then doing something that hurts you, right? That's what bringing in your friends to side with you is like. So who's going to feel comfortable with that? Nobody. You found that 69% of fights are perpetual, not solvable. Can you give us one tip for managing in a world where we have a conflict that's just never going to be resolved? <laughs> okay, so I'll give you an example. And you sound just like my husband and me with the messiness versus the tidy, right? Wait, which one of you is which? Messy. Yes. <laughs> just yes. Messy meaning I have books everywhere. <laughs> and papers. Uh, and <laughs> bills. And I once found a check in 19, maybe 96, that dated back to 1983. Never deposited. <laughs> and it was a nice check. Oh, well. So anyway, let's see. Perpetual problems are based in personality differences and lifestyle preference differences. So John and I, at first, used to really fight about that, and I'd tear my hair out and stuff. But now we reached a settlement, and that's what you have to do, because your partner is never going to change that part of their personality. That's just who they are right? Or their lifestyle preference. He doesn't see the messes the way I do. I've got, you know, super visual stuff and there is no connection for him between the environment and the mess and his brain. And for me, everything around me affects my brain totally. So I can't think well if there are messes all over the place and I immediately have to go start tidying them up. So our compromise was that I would let the messes gather for three to four weeks, which happened prodigiously fast. And then maybe after three weeks, I would say, honey, 
the mess is really starting to bother me. Would you please clean it up? He probably won't. And then a few days later, I say, honey, notice the kitchen island. There's 17 books on it. There's no room for the food. Would you please, I beg you. <laughs> and if he still doesn't clean it up, then I get mad. Okay. Yeah. How do we get over the feeling that if they loved us enough, they would change their personality? Because you got to know the science. Nobody changes their personality, their basic personality. And so expecting them to, for any reason, whether it's to get a different job or to love you better, is like saying, okay, son, would you please be the moon? I don't like the bright yellow light. Will you please be just white and a little paler? Then I'll love you. What? You know, that's not going to work. So it's an acceptance that this is their personality. It's probably not going to change. But then mm -hmm. in that, finding a compromise that might not be either of your ideals, but it will work for both of you. It's exactly. A, it's a dialogue with the problem, with the differences. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Okay, I'm going to do a little quick fire where I'm going to give you real listeners' fights, and I would love just one piece of advice for each of their real fights. We often have fights about not being on the same page about boundaries with people of the opposite sex, friends, acquaintances, coworkers. Are there better ways to communicate our fears, build our trust, and listen to the other? Oh, absolutely. Well, let's see. The person who is not maybe violating some boundaries needs to tell the other person what it makes them feel when they see their partner talking very intimately or closely with somebody else. It makes me feel inferior. It makes me feel like I'm invisible. It makes me feel like I'm afraid you're not attracted to me anymore. Maybe you don't love me. Maybe you're looking for somebody else. Maybe you're going to leave me. Those are all the fantasies that go through my mind. I don't necessarily believe that you're going to go have an affair, but those are the feelings I have, and they're really super painful. I wonder if you could, etc. We fight about sex and the other person not initiating enough and me feeling not sexy enough. We've talked about it and talked about it, but nothing changes. What can we do? Hmm. Okay. So in a situation like that, first of all, you need to have a discussion about what's going on with the partner who's not initiating that makes them reluctant to initiate. Maybe they're really afraid of rejection and they take it personally even if I'm so exhausted with my 17 kids that I have no energy left. <laughs> so you talk about feelings first. And then we have a wonderful kit that's called Got Sex. Really cute. And it has seven exercises in it. One of them has to do with initiating. And what are ways that you like sex to be initiated? And what are ways that I like sex to be initiated so that we really know what each other's desires are and preferences are? Then it makes it easier. Yeah, we have 100 questions you can ask a woman about her erotic world and 100 questions you can ask a man about his erotic world. And we give them away to people. And they lead to conversations that 
talk about what for you is the accelerator and what for you is the break for sexual activity. We fight about different money beliefs, the amount of money we're bringing to the relationship, what to do with our money. It's so layered. How can we start to speak about the damage money is doing to us? Well, first of all, I think rather than speaking about the damage it's doing, the questions that I posed a little while ago are really the secret to unlocking this problem. Questions like beliefs, values, ethics, what are they about money, but particularly background or childhood history. When you talk about that and how was money handled in your family, boy, do you run into deeper understanding and tons of vulnerability. For example, you might hear, I had a dad who was saving, saving, saving for retirement, never did anything fun with the whole family. We lived incredibly poorly, but money was getting saved for retirement for them. And then he died at 47. So what that taught me is you can't count on life. So have fun now, spend money now, rather than assuming you're going to live long enough to use the savings. And the other person might say something very different than that. So as you get down to the understandings, that again says, oh my God, I didn't know that. Wow, no wonder you feel that way. Well, let's see if we can make a compromise. Is money often a perpetual argument? Yep. Quite often. Yeah. Yep. Are there yep. other topics that tend to be perpetual? Yeah. Housework, parenting, sex, money. What else? Fun, adventure. Those are <laughs> perpetuals, you think? Could be, yeah. Because one okay. person wants a lot more than the other. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. so oh, and you know, being emotionally distant versus intimate and close. And in-laws. Emotionally. Oh, God. <laughs> in-laws is a big one. I love the idea of perpetual arguments, though, because it feels so permission-giving. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like, oh, there's something wrong with me because I can't solve this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's so true. 69% of all problems, as you said, are perpetual. They never go away. Well, the irony is a lot of times the perpetual issue is what drew us to that person in the first place. <laughs> that is so interesting. Okay. Our fight center around damaging habits and addictions the other person has that bother us. Screen time, marijuana usage, etc. Are we right to feel bothered? How can we approach these conversations? Mm, yes, you're absolutely right to be bothered. So, you know, again, it really depends on what the addiction is. If it's something that's really health-threatening, then you can bring it up to your partner by saying, you know what, I'm terrified I'm going to lose you. You're drinking a whole bottle of wine every single night, and I know that that damages health. It even damages brain cells over time. And I want us to be able to live a nice, beautiful, long life. So that's part one of addiction. But these days, we have so much addiction to technology, right? So what can be brought up at those times is saying, I miss you again. And it seems like the communication you're having through technology or the video games you're playing are taking the place of our emotional intimacy. 
And I would really love it if we could just go out and take a walk together, even, as a beginning for being more together and away from technology. I love that because it's not, oh, this thing is bothering me unto itself. It forces you to say, what am I losing because of this thing? And Mm -hmm. how can we bring that in as almost a replacement? It'll naturally kind of crowd out the other thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Okay, let's do this as the last one. Extended family makes us fight a lot. My husband is tired when we visit my family or my friends are in town, but never with his, and it feels like equal effort isn't given. What is the best way to approach this conversation and express how I'm feeling and what I expect from him in these moments? Hmm. Okay. Well, the first thing one has to do is to find out how your partner feels about your family members and whether or not your partner has had some negative experiences with those family members that makes them shut down or pull away. And you may not have observed those. You may not know those. And those are very important for the other person to say, and they may have been afraid to tell you about that. So find out about those first. And then very gently say, I think you're the most wonderful, lovable person on the planet, and I want my family to see that too. Is there a way you could participate more in our family meals together? Because you're brilliant. I want my in-laws to see that, or my parents to see that. Starting with curiosity. What's going on? You know, what's your perspective? About emotions. Mm. Yeah. Can you leave us with just one homework assignment, something that we can do as soon as we stop listening to this episode to help us fight better? Hmm. Help you fight better. Well, go home to your partner and say, if you think you've been fighting all wrong, you can say, you know what? I think our fights are awful because we are, not you, we are using a lot of criticism and defensiveness in talking about our conflicts. And I heard today that that doesn't work. And so let me tell you what I heard, etc. And I'm going to try and practice that even more. And if you can too, it'd be wonderful. And we're both going to buy a copy of Fight Right. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Can you give us a tip if we want to fight less? Uh, yes. It's the old one that people have with two-year-old children. <laughs> Which, who are always saying, no, no, pick your battles, pick your battles. You know, there's some stuff that is so light and trivial, you can let it go. Save your energy for the bigger ones that really affect you deeply in the heart, in the soul. Those are the ones that count and that you can talk about in a really productive, constructive way. Can you tell us a little bit more about your beautiful book and your own words and anything else that you want to spotlight? The book is called Fight Right. And I think the wonderful thing about the book is that it talks about how to turn conflict into intimacy and connection. Rather than thinking conflict has no purpose, it really has a purpose. And the purpose of conflict is mutual understanding. And so the book is filled with techniques for getting people toward mutual understanding. Mm -hmm. 
all of it is research-based, about three different styles of conflict that people often feel the most comfortable with. One is couples who are avoidant. Another one is couples who are more validating, which means they do have conflicts, but they stay calm, they stay pretty rational, they may agree to disagree, or they agree on compromise, so they have kind of an easier time of dealing with conflict. Those are validators, we call them. And then the third are the volatile couples. And so volatile couples are the ones I described earlier who are passionate and intense and really get to the ceiling when they're having conflict without necessarily using the four horsemen. And so with those three styles identified, it's really interesting to see what you're most comfortable with and to also think about what your partner is most comfortable with. So that is something in itself you can talk about. And if there's a mismatch there, how can we still have conflicts that feel good for both of us? while having these different styles of addressing conflict. And we give lots of tips, lots of methods for all of that as well, plus tons of stories that, you know, John and I have participated in in our own <laughs> lives because we are not perfect gurus. We make mistakes all the time. And really easy to use methods to alter the way you deal with conflict, as John said, to build more understanding and compassion and maybe compromise. I absolutely loved the book. It was brilliant. And you guys are brilliant here today. And I so appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you, Thanks Liz. so much, Liz. Enjoyed the interview. Thank you. Fabulous. It was really, really fun. Thank you. Look, Zach and I have been together for 16 freaking years, and a lot of this was still revelatory to me. It is never too late to evolve in your relationship, and the Gottman's research is so wildly valuable and pragmatic and applicable. Everybody fights, and nobody is going to do it perfectly. All we can do is try to be better at it, and everything the Gottman said here is going to be so helpful. If there's someone in your life that you think would benefit from all of this amazing wisdom, please, please send them a link to listen. It is the best way to support the podcast, and it is so appreciated. And if someone shared a link with you and you were new to the podcast, welcome. I am so glad that you're here. Make sure that you're following on whatever platform you like to listen on. All you have to do is go to the main podcast page. That's the one that lists all of the Liz Moody podcast episodes, and you'll see the word follow under the logo on Spotify. And then there's a little follow with a plus sign button on the top right of that same page on Apple Podcasts. Also, Apple just did an update that's really annoying. So if you follow the podcast there, even if you already have been following it, go to that little button in the top right of the main podcast page, the one that lists all of our episodes, and then click turn on automatic downloads so the pod keeps showing up in your feed. That way you will not miss out on any new episodes. They will appear right in your feed every single Wednesday. And you do not want to miss out because we have some very exciting ones coming up, including some great advice episodes, like one with one of your favorite TV dads, any guesses, and an episode all about how to identify and deal with narcissists, which I know many of you are eagerly waiting for, and I promise it is worth the wait. Okay, I love you, and I'll see you next Wednesday for the next episode of the Liz Moody Podcast. 
Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for more than five years now, I've been drinking AG1. It's just one scoop mixed in water, and it makes me feel energized and focused without any kind of caffeine jitters. I discovered AG1 after a ton of research because I was looking for one simple habit I could incorporate into my day that would support my entire body and cover my nutritional bases. No matter what the rest of the day looks like, I know that I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. I think it tastes delicious too, which I know people are always nervous about, but I think it's like a tropical vanilla flavor and I crave it, especially because I associate the flavor with feeling so good. Of course, we're always trying to eat our fruits and vegetables and balance meals over here, but nobody is perfect. So AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, and adaptogens. I especially love it for all of the travel I've been doing. I think it's a huge reason why I still feel so good and have avoided getting sick despite being on a plane a few times a week for so much of this year and having to eat out so often. AG1 is rigorously third-party tested, which you know I always look out for. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. AG1 is one of the highest quality products to elevate your health, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. That's drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. Check it out. 